this morning to our second in the series on banished, what it means to be banished to an island of spiritual infancy. The last time we were together, I spoke to you about the first way that that can happen, and that would be for you to love God with your lips but not your life. The second way that I want us to deal with this morning has to do with having a fear of God. If you want to remain a spiritual infant, have no fear of God. The text I would like to examine primarily is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn there, in a few minutes we will examine that passage of Scripture. But this morning as we come together, I want you to be brutally honest with yourself with regard to your own spiritual maturity. And you've heard me say many times that we always need to be suspect of our spiritual maturity. Immature believers are described by Paul as, quote, men of flesh, babes in Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.1. And as we look at Scripture, we see that the spiritually immature have an internal carnality that causes them to be undiscerning, to succumb to the lusts of the flesh and the temptations of the world. As you look at the spiritually immature, you will see little love of Christ in their life. And you will also see very little of Christ in their life. For this reason, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Few Christians understand what it means to fear God to fear the Lord, particularly in our day where the gospel has been so distorted, where the gospel has been so sanitized to appeal to a culture that hates God. The message of the cross is hard for us to fathom, especially for those who have no grasp of the holiness of God nor the sinfulness of man. And therefore, they have no fear of God. The gospel is a scandalous message that offends our sensibilities. It shatters our pride. And for this reason, a friendlier gospel has emerged in our modern era, one that removes the offense of the cross and would have us believe that we are more deprived than depraved. And as a result, Jesus is more of a Santa than a Savior. And churches become little more than a Christmas tree where spiritual children go to have fun and get their gifts, be with their family, be with their friends. And like most kids at Christian at Christmas, they they seldom get what they really want and they tire of what they do get by dinner time. 
Today, following Christ is all about me and my needs rather than God and his glory. Worse yet, many believers live as if God doesn't even exist. Their heart attitude, their thought life betrays a practical atheism. They have no private devotional life. Many have no passion to live for the glory of God. They are bereft of an infant-like longing for the life-sustaining nourishment of the Word of God that exposes their heart and allows them to hear the voice of God. They have no concern for personal sin, for, for the sins of others. They have no desire to use their spiritual gifts in serving Christ. They have no love for the lost. They have no openness to the ministry of the body of Christ in their life or in the life of their family. They have no rich joy in communing with the lover of their souls. They have no sincere love for Christ. No heartfelt gratitude for saving, transforming, enabling grace. No worshipful awe of of the astounding attributes of God who died in their stead. So therefore they have no inward groaning, waiting eagerly for their adoption as sons, the redemption of their body, as Paul reminds us in Romans 8.23. Many Christians live their life on the horizontal rather than the vertical. They live on the horizontal plane of of self-will and self-fulfillment rather than the vertical plane of Christ-exalting worship that begins in the heart and is manifested in the life. They live for the fleeting pleasures of the kingdom of self rather than the glorious splendors of the kingdom of God. And like the saints at Ephesus, Described in Revelation 2, many have left their first love. I would encourage you to ask yourself, do these things describe me? And if so, what has happened to you? While the answer will be multifaceted, at a very fundamental level, you have no fear of God. Like an undisciplined child that has no fear of their benevolent father, you have no fear of the benevolent authority of your heavenly father. And the result is spiritual immaturity. A life that dishonors Christ. A life of childlike rebellion against God that is manifested in some of the ways that I just described. You know, spiritual immaturity is expected when a person first comes to Christ. But it is deplorable for those who have known Christ for many years. You expect a toddler to act like a toddler. You expect a a juvenile to act like a juvenile. But if you see the same types of things in an adult, we all get a little bit concerned. But not so in neo-evangelicalism of our day. 
Churches are filled with adults who profess Christ, yet they function on the level of a spiritual juvenile. And then there are many puerile pastors that live their life in the same immature way, and they keep the rest of their people at that same level of immaturity. And sadly, most Christians fail to see the problem. I fear that many times we are like the proverbial frog in the kettle that can only detect sudden changes and will therefore die when the temperature of the water increases. So too the church fails to detect the slow changing trends of weak and false doctrine, of ear-tickling preaching that threatens the very life of the church, a church that no longer fears God. How often do you hear the old phrase, that is a God-fearing person? You don't hear that much these days. I fear we've lost sight as believers that we live in a world system that is energized by Satan. God has temporarily allowed Satan to be the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. And two of his greatest strategies would include the following. Number one, to undermine the credibility and the integrity of the church by filling it with false professors of faith. So the unbelieving world sees the hypocrisy of these so-called Christians and they scoff at the gospel. And secondly, the enemy influences immature Christians in such a way as to cause them to conform their lives to the culture rather than confronting the culture. And therefore, they end up living as practical atheists. And they have no fear of God. This is now rampant in the church. In his book, The Juvenilization of American Christianity, Thomas Burgler defines juvenilization as, quote, the process by which the religious beliefs, practices, and developmental characteristics of adolescence become accepted as appropriate for Christians of all ages. It begins with the praiseworthy goal of adapting the faith to appeal to the young. But it sometimes ends badly with both young and adults, both youth and adults, embracing immature versions of the faith. He goes on to ask, why should anyone care about juvenilization? Early in my college teaching career, I asked a group of, of my students, what does a mature Christian look like? They disliked the question and resisted it. One said, I don't think we ever arrive in our spiritual growth. Another answered, well, we're not supposed to judge one another. And another said, no one is perfect in this life. The author went on to say, sadly, these evangelical college students did not believe that Christian maturity was either attainable or desirable. The churches that had nurtured these young people well enough to get them to pursue a college, a Christian college education 
had not managed to inspire them with a biblical vision of spiritual maturity, end quote. I have a hard time believing a preacher of the Word of God has a reverential fear of God when he stands before his congregation looking like he just cleaned out his garage, yucking it up with jokes with his congregation with the Bible in his hand. What a contrast to what the Lord expects from his messengers. What a contrast to what he considers precious in his eyes. In Isaiah 66 and verse 2, he speaks through his prophet and he says, But to this one I will look. In other words, this is what gets my attention. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. My friends, I would submit to you that there's very little trembling going on these days. Especially when it comes to the word of God. The spiritual juvenile has no grasp, for example, that Jesus Christ is the creator, the sustainer, the consummator of all things, that he is the son of the living God, a reality so powerful that it caused Peter to absolutely fall down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What is missing today is an accurate understanding of the vast chasm between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Because, my friends, that is what will produce a genuine fear of God that causes a man, causes a man, a woman to get serious about inward and outward cleansing. This is what motivates a man to destroy the idols he serves in his heart. And today, I wish to help us see from Scripture what it means to pursue holiness by having a reverential fear of God, a life dominating awe of our sovereign Creator, our Savior, and our King. Because, my friends, this is foundational to Christian living. Again, our text this morning is 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. And here, the Apostle Peter is writing in 1 Peter to the suffering saints in Rome. And he's instructing them on how to live holy lives in an environment of mounting persecution. We believe this letter was written just before, or possibly at the same time, maybe even a little after, that time when the emperor Nero secretly set Rome on fire so that he could rebuild it the way he wanted it for his own glory. When he did that, the results were absolutely catastrophic, as you could imagine. Not only were thousands of homes destroyed and lost, but also many magnificent temples and shrines were reduced to ashes. Moreover, millions of household idols were were destroyed. They were suddenly gone. And this produced great confusion 
in the minds of the people of Rome, wondering what is it about our gods? They're not strong enough to somehow protect us from such a disastrous fire. So with thousands of Roman citizens homeless and injured, grieving over lost loved ones, confused about their powerless idols, inconsolable over the over the loss of their of their beautiful city, their temples, their shrines, even their culture, a seething resentment began to set in. Mourning turned to rage. And rage began to turn to revenge. History tells us that Nero recognized the mounting hostility. He needed a scapegoat, and so he blamed the Christians for setting the fires. After all, the Romans already hated the Christians because they saw Christians as a sect of the Jews, and they hated the Jews. And they knew that the Jews and the Christians wanted nothing to do with their Roman culture or their Roman gods. So they quickly turned on the saints to get their revenge. And, of course, this was Satan's plan all along. So knowing all of this, the Spirit of God inspires Peter to write this powerful letter to encourage and to instruct his precious little church as increased persecution threatened these dear saints who were already beleaguered, many of them homeless, poor, persecuted, In chapter 1, you'll notice in verses 1 and 2, he describes them as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. He went on to encourage them concerning their heavenly inheritance Uh, to remind them of the infinite value of knowing and loving and serving Christ. He instructs them on how they, they need to think and how they need to live triumphantly in a world that hates them, how they can avoid losing their hope and their testimony in a world system that is bent on destroying both. And his purpose in writing is summarized in chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Having struggled with his own spiritual immaturity that resulted in him denying Christ three times in the face of persecution, Peter knew firsthand how important it is to stand firm in the true grace of God. And my friends, at the very core of standing firm is the idea of conducting our lives in the fear of God because we know who He is, we know what He has done for us. Because the more we fear God, the less we will fear man, and the more we will love Christ. In fact, according to Revelation 14 and verse 6, we read that just before the Lord returns, an angelic messenger will be flying in mid-heaven preaching an eternal gospel 
to those living on, on the earth, and he will say with a loud voice what is really the core of the gospel message. In verse 7, he says, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth. So it is no surprise that Peter would instruct the saints in like manner, saying in 1 Peter 1, verse 17, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." Beloved, I would submit to you that persecution is looming on our horizon as well. And we will not be able to stand firm in the truth of the gospel if we conduct our lives as spiritual juveniles. So I would exhort you to examine your heart. It is time to grow up. It is time to man up, men in particular. It is time for us to set the example, to stand firm where we work, to stand firm in our families, to model for them what it means to fear God. This morning I wish to answer the question, first of all, what does it mean to fear God? Then we're going to look more closely at Peter's words because I believe that in these three verses, three dominant themes emerge. We're going to look at the object of fear, the conduct of fear, and the motivation for fear. So, what does it mean to fear God? Have you ever thought about that? Solomon says in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we see this the sacred thread of fearing God woven all through the tapestry of Scripture. So what does this mean? Well, at a most fundamental level, to fear the Lord means to have a, a deep reverence for God expressed in submission to His will. But fools, as Solomon says, despise such wisdom and instruction. They are self-willed. They are mentally naive, they are morally irresponsible, they are spiritually dead. They fear man, not God. And God helps us better understand this important concept by explaining it in Deuteronomy 4. If you'd like to turn there for a moment. Deuteronomy 4, God speaks to his people through Moses. He is urging Israel to obey his law. And in verse 10, Moses says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Horeb is a synonym for Mount Sinai. Now, the Israelites who lived in that day would have a hard time forgetting that event. Because, as you will remember, that was the time when the Lord himself 
descended upon Mount Sinai in blazing fire. The Word of God tells us that smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, that the whole mountain quaked violently. In Hebrews 12:18, we read, There was darkness and gloom and a whirlwind. It was a terrifying scene. We read in Exodus that there was the sound of a trumpet that grew louder and louder. And then God himself spoke with the voice of thunder. Can you imagine that? Such majesty and power caused the camp of the Israelites to quiver in sheer terror. They were so horrified that they said to Moses in Exodus 20 and verse 19, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. My friends, think about it. If the sound of the voice of God was life-threatening, what would it be like to somehow stand in His presence? The concept is overwhelming. We read in Hebrews 12:21 that even Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And in Deuteronomy 4:10, again, he exhorts the people to remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. When the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. And that they may teach their children. Briefly, I'd like to point out four very obvious truths that emerge from this text. Number one, God expects us to fear him because of his sheer power and majesty. Those who don't have no understanding of the holiness of God, of the otherness of God, of the transcendent glory of God. He is beyond anything that we could ever even imagine. And secondly, fear must be learned from his revelation to us. We must hear his words so that we learn to fear him. And thirdly, fear includes being obedient to his revealed will. And fourthly, when we grasp these things, We are to teach them to our children. So fearing God, my friends, is not just conjuring up some kind of of emotion, working yourself into some kind of charismatic frenzy. Fearing God means that you have to know who he is based upon his revelation of himself in his word. You must learn that revelation. You must submit your life to that revelation obeying his revealed will, and as a result, you will have a fear that is so precious to you that you will teach it to your children. This theme is also reiterated in Deuteronomy 10, beginning in verse 12. There we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Now what's amazing is that the the Jews failed to do this. 
they forgot very quickly the God of Mount Sinai. And my, how we all tend to do the same. But because of God's unfailing covenantal love for his people, he promised to one day restore them back unto himself. Many passages speak to this. One is in Hosea 3 and verse 5. There the Lord tells his people through his prophet, afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, which is a reference to the Messiah during his millennial reign. Then he says this, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Here we glean more about this idea of what it means to fear God. Notice that by God's grace, wayward Israel will eventually fear the Lord when they finally confess who Jesus is. That will be a testimony of confession that is so exceedingly painful that it will cause them to tremble as they come towards him. You want to know what that confession will sound like? You want to have a glimpse of what fearing the Lord sounds like? Let me read it to you. Israel's future confession. I'll read just a short portion of it found in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Here's what they will say. In brokenness of heart, surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, we thought he was a false Christ and God was destroying him. My, how wrong we were. They go on to say, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Oh, dear friends, what a heart-wrenching confession. This is what it sounds like to come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness. To think that one day they will realize that all of their acts of self-righteous law-keeping were to no avail. They counted for absolutely nothing that millions of their people who went on before them were self-deceived and perished in their sins. We read more of this in Zechariah 12, verse 10, where we hear what the Lord they should have feared will say and do for them. There we read that He will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So indeed, my friends, as the prophet Hosea prophesied in 3 and verse 5, they will one day come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Oh, child of God, don't you see this? 
This is what it means to fear God. You see, they will not have a fear in that day like they had at Sinai, a fear of judgment that causes sinful men to tremble with terror because perfect love casts out the fear of judgment and causes a man to treasure that fear, that awe of the lover of their soul. But in that day, their fear will draw them to their their Messiah. A fear that comes as a result of sanctifying grace, as the result of covenantal love. And indeed, they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. You see, my friends, the fear of the unsaved evokes terror and causes a man to flee from God. But the fear of the saved evokes love and causes a man to run towards God. The fear of the unsaved will cause them to one day call out for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the presence of Him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation 6 and verse 16. But the fear of the saved causes us to say, Come, Lord Jesus. See, there is a huge difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Both evoke fear. Mount Sinai ignites the terror of offended holiness. Mount Zion, on the other hand, animates a reverential awe and and a sheer astonishment of salvation by sovereign grace. As Christians, we will never have to come in terror to Mount Sinai because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead, according to Hebrews 12 and verse 22, we will come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God. We're going to come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of, spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. My friends, even as the redeemed of Israel will one day come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness, we as the redeemed church today come trembling before him. Are we not to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling? Why? Because it is God who is at work in us. Unless you grasp that, my friends, you will never fear God. Dear child of God, think of this. What what worshiping awe comes sweeping over us when we reflect upon the majesty and excellency of Christ who has saved us? What sanctified trembling animates our tears of joy when we look upon our, our sovereign God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords and yet who has stooped so low as to make us His adopted children. What quivering with sacred delight 
to do as the psalmist says in Psalm 2 and verse 11, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. What reverential adoration consumes us when we get lost in thinking about the splendors of heaven that await us. Oh, dear friends, the goodness, the greatness of God that should cause us all to just fall prostrate before Him in fear and trembling. Dear Christian, this is the kind of fear that we must cultivate in our hearts. A fear that marvels at God's revelation of Himself as we learn more of who He is. A fear that longs to learn more of what He tells us in His Word so that we can submit our lives to Him and so that we can teach our children and warn them. Then we can say with Job, I have heard thee by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and in ashes. My friends, this is what it means to fear God. Now we come to our text in 1 Peter 1, verse 17. He says, And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Number one, we see the object of fear. And who is this? Well, it is the one we address as Father. Here we understand even better what it means to fear God. There is a big difference between fearing God and being afraid of Him. And here we are to fear our Heavenly Father, but not be afraid of Him. In fact, think about it. The very term Father denotes origin. It denotes intimacy. It emphasizes personal, relational love. That relational aspect of our union with God. We are His children. And what does a father do with his children? Well, he loves them. He provides for them. He protects them. So we are not afraid of Him. You see, before salvation, He was our judge. We stood condemned in his presence, having violated his law. But then, because of his great love for us, he drew us unto himself in salvation. He made us his sons and his daughters. Now, after salvation, he is our gracious heavenly father. As a child fears his father out of respect for his father's authority and the essence of his character, He will be in awe of his father's strength. I love to see that in little children when they look up at their dad and they're just in awe of their dad. The little child will tremble at the thought of disobeying the father that he loves, the father that loves him. Certainly he wants to avoid chastening from the father, but even more importantly, he wants to avoid anything that might cause his father to be disappointed in Him. You see, my friends, a child fears his father not because he is afraid of him, but because he loves him. In fact, 
the closer he gets, the safer he feels. This is the experience of every person who has been justified by grace through faith in Christ. Romans 8.15, Paul says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. A great term of endearment, Daddy, Papa. So for the redeemed, the object of our fear is the one, Peter says, we address as father. The the term address means to, to call upon or to appeal to. And that's what we do even with our earthly fathers when we're young. We appeal to them. We call upon them. We need help. We know that the father is there to protect That is true with our Heavenly Father. Did not Jesus teach us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You see, to hallow his name is to fear him. It is to acknowledge his His supreme holiness, to honor him, to give him glory, to give him praise because of his consummate perfection and power, because of his infinite Purity and his righteousness. This is at the heart of worship. But unlike our earthly fathers, Peter reminds us that our heavenly father sees all that we do. He records all of our deeds, both good and bad. He says that he is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And for this reason, Peter warns us to, quote, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And here we move from the object of fear to the conduct of fear. Or another way of putting it, the fruit of fear. Perhaps a good way of thinking of it is to use the Latin phrase corum Deo. We are to live corum Deo. That Latin phrase refers to doing something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. My friends, do you realize that you live before the face of God? Your heavenly Father, He is the one we see here who impartially judges according to each one's work. So to conduct yourself in fear means that we must live our lives with the full awareness that we are living in the presence and under the authority and for the glory of our God. So we don't compartmentalize our lives so that in private we live one way, but but in public we live another way. That's hypocrisy. If that is you, there's something wrong with your fear of God. Do you ever consider this, that he is watching and he is recording? It's an amazing thought, isn't it? He will chasten and reward. How tragic to see so many Christians living under a cloud of divine chastening and forfeiting eternal reward. Like like a rebellious teenager who is grounded, only many times we don't even know it. All of the things that we forfeit in our lives because of our rebellion. This should evoke a healthy fear of God, not not a slavish terror of eternal condemnation because Christ has satisfied 
God's, God's wrath on our behalf, but it should evoke a sanctified trembling, a, a holy caution that does not contradict what Jude says, that someday we will stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. As a horseman, I have a healthy fear of a horse. I respect his great power to hurt me. And that fear prevents me from becoming careless. I must work in harmony with him. And when we work in that way, we have a wonderful relationship together. Well, the same at some level can be said of our conduct and our lives before God. We want to avoid his chastening on earth. We want to avoid forfeiting any blessing in heaven. And therefore, Peter says, we are to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. Now, I, I would add here, it's not so much just the fear of, of, of judgment necessarily, not, not even a, so much a fear of loss of reward, but, but think of it in a positive way. We conduct our, our lives with a positive awe, with a reverent astonishment that flows from a heart that is so overwhelmed by God's undeserved mercy that there isn't anything that we would do that would spurn our Father's love for us, given all that He has done for us. What an unfathomable price was paid for our salvation. Jesus paid it all. And this is the kind of fear that Peter is describing. It's as though he is saying, I don't want to do anything that would grieve my Heavenly Father. Not merely because I I dread His discipline, though that is true, but because I abhor anything that might cause a breach in our relationship. Peter knew what that felt like in ways that would be hard to imagine. As we look at Scripture, we see that Peter could see Christ and Christ could see him when he denied him that third time. The Word of God says that while he was still speaking, a cock crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And at that point, the text says that Peter remembered the word of the Lord and he went out and he wept bitterly. Don't you know that's a sight he would never forget? Somehow I can see it myself with my own life. How many times I have denied the Lord in my life. What a powerful form of divine discipline and deterrent for sin. The writer of Hebrews addresses our earthly discipline from the hand of our Father and his warning in chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. He says, you... You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And in verse 10, he says, he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. And on several occasions, Paul cautions us about the loss of reward 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, he says, 
Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. He says that when the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. And for this reason, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And here's why. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. My friends, the Father who loves you is watching and recording. So because of our reverential, all-consuming, astonishing awe of our Father, we should conduct ourselves in fear. Peter gave a brief summary of what this looks like in the preceding verses, beginning in verse 13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Bottom line, he's saying, folks, live in light of of eternity and live separate from the world. Does this describe you? Or do you live for yourself today? the here and now, and live in harmony in the world as if the Lord doesn't exist. Does your life conform to the culture or does it confront it? Ask yourself, do I live quorum Deo before the face of God? And if friends, if, if none of this resonates in your heart, please hear me. You have no fear of God. And finally, what is the motivation for fear? Notice again the end of verse 17. He says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that, here it is, here's the motivation, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, The blood of Christ. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. We have been redeemed. A ransom was paid to release us from the bondage of our sin. From the penalty and the power of sin. And that ransom was the precious blood of the Son of God. The Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing on earth that compares to the value of the blood of Christ. A greater motivation could there possibly be for us to conduct our lives in fear? You see, our obligation as the redeemed is to love our benefactor in proportion to the price that was paid for our ransom. And our ransom was paid, as he says, with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We must never forget that God cannot be merciful at the expense of justice. 
You see, every sin must be punished because God is holy. And since we have violated his holy law, we are indebted to him. He alone is the creditor who can establish the terms of the ransom. And the only ransom that could be paid was the blood of his son. Thus, the Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute who paid the penalty. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So my friends, how can we possibly reflect on the marvel of our redemption and, and, and the love of our Redeemer without falling on our faces in reverential awe? You see, when we really grasp what it means to fear God, Once again, we will fear man less and we will love Christ more. Peter learned this lesson well. As we study his life in Scripture, we know that he served the Lord faithfully for some 40 years, knowing that he would eventually be crucified, according to Jesus' prophecy. In fact, that's what happened two years after he wrote this letter. And tradition tells us that before he was martyred for his faith, he was required to watch his wife be crucified. And they said that he got before her on his knees over the period of time that it took for her to die. And he kept saying to his dear wife, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And then when it came his turn, we're told that he pled with his executioners not to be crucified in the same way that the Lord was crucified because he was unworthy of that. He wanted to be crucified upside down, which they did. Dear friends, the more you fear God, the less you will fear man and the more you will love Christ. If you have little fear of God, you will have little love of God and you will remain in a state of spiritual infancy, undiscerning, undisciplined, unruly, unfaithful, unaccountable. And so I would humbly call you this day to repentance. And dear friend, if you're here today without Christ, I would have to say that you fear man, but you don't fear God. You know that in your heart. But Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, these words. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. May God grant you the grace to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the judge of the living and the dead. Trust Him as Savior today and walk in fear of the Lord. And then you will enjoy the infinite blessings of His love. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your love for us, 
Indeed, we are overwhelmed with a sense of awe as we think of who you are. And because of that, Lord, we do not run from you, but we run towards you. And how we long to run into the presence of the glory of the triune Godhead someday by your grace, for your glory. Lord, for anyone that does not know Christ, how I pray that you would be merciful to them this day. Overwhelm them with such a profound sense of conviction that the legitimate fear they should have right now, knowing that the wrath of God abides upon them, will cause them to run to the cross and beg for that mercy that you will so freely give. Do your work of grace this day, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.